All right, folks. Welcome to the Monsters Madness and Magic Podcast. I'm your host, Justin, here with a quick word before we dive in. Now, in this episode, I chat with iconic singer and songwriter Klaus Meine about the rise of the Scorpions, the fall of the Berlin Wall, the band's first tour in the USA, and more. As always, thank you for listening, and if you'd like to help the show grow, please leave us a review wherever you're listening to the podcast. Anyway, without further ado, here you go. and ghouls. This is your comrade, the Crypt Keeper here, reporting dead from the sanctuary of the strange. Tonight's macabre myth is a fright-filled feature, one overflowing with monsters, madness, and magic. Klaus, take us back in time. You're a youngster, just a little kid. Are you a book reader, fort builder, troublemaker? Are you all the above? I was reading books, but I was also a troublemaker, I think. (laughs) (laughs) What kind of trouble? Always some good trouble, you know. (laughs) Having a good time with friends, singing like crazy in the house, even in the early days, you know. I had, had some cool friends whenever they came to our house. I joined them and we were singing together and they were brothers and man, the way they sang, they had beautiful harmony vocals, you know. So right. it was pretty cool and very inspiring in the in the early days. So you just had a lot of parties going on, huh? Yeah, a lot of parties. Of course, I guess it was a couple of years later when I was hanging with all those musician friends from my first band, The Mushrooms, you know, so we were pretty much on the road every other weekend with a lot of friends. I mean, in those days, we had no transporter for the equipment. We didn't have anything, you know, but we had, we had a very strong, not fan base, but a base of friends, you know, right, and right. They, they came by with their cars. So we went to some little clubs outside in the countryside, you know, and, and played a couple of shows for the weekend, you know, and that was it. And we had, had a great time. It was all about music, it was all about friendship, and to impress the girls, of course. <laughs> so you mentioned that you uh, read books, Klaus. What Do you have any favorite authors or maybe some favorite books that you lean towards? Oh, not, I'm talking about the very early days mm-hmm. when I was into comics like Tarzan. You know Tarzan? Yeah, yeah. The man rocking the jungle. Yeah, Tarzan, <laughs> Jane, I know all of them. Exactly. <laughs> that was the kind of stuff, you know, at early age that got me really inspired. Or other heroes coming out of this comic comic world, you know. So did you always live in Germany? Did you grow up and live there? Yeah, I grew up in Germany, Hanover, West Germany at the time, post-war generation. Growing up, our parents were busy building up the country again 
which was totally bombed after World War II, you know, totally destroyed. My father was a gardener, you know, he used to work in the famous Herrenhäuser Garden here, here in Hannover. So that's why we, we shared a house with, with another family in one of those historical gardens here in Hanover. And uh, it was pretty cool because for me growing up there, it was like a huge playground, you know? Oh yeah, I can imagine. So with all those, all those beautiful nature around, you know, it was easy for my fantasy to become Tatsan. <laughs> <laughs> so you'd mentioned your dad was a gardener. Were either, were either your parents, were they musically inclined at all? Do you think that's where you got it from? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my grandma used to sing, and she had a beautiful voice. And my father used to play a man- mandolin. His brother played the guitar, or later his, his friend had a guitar, and uh, the son of his friend played an accordion, you know, so. And for the weekends, there was always music in the house, and they were playing those popular schlagers at the time, you know. Mm to cheer them up and and I think my father wrote a couple of songs himself you know I could never figure out what the inspiration was for that one you know but it was a very positive vibe in the house and for us for for the kids a couple of friends came along in my age group so we were playing a little percussion or things you know so it was always music in the house it was beautiful and very inspiring Klaus when you think back to maybe formative films that you grew up on what comes to mind does anything pop out you're talking about in the early days? Yeah, as, as early as you can remember. Do you remember the first film that you saw or the first time you went to the movies? Yeah, I remember that. I don't know the English title, Die Brücke am Quai. It was, I think it, it was a war movie. And for some reason, I was hooked on the whistle theme. You know, there was a beautiful piece of music. I think that got me attracted. And I wanted to see this movie pretty much because of the music. They wouldn't let me in because it was... I might have been 10, 11 years old, and this was allowed when you had to be at least 12 years old, you know, so, mm. and I remember that I, I was destroyed, you know, <laughs> I was totally up in tears when I couldn't enter the movie theater, and this was one of the early, when I was around 9 or 10 years old, and I wanted to see this movie so badly, I guess because of the music, you know, because it, it was definitely not a, not a, a movie for for a kid you know to go for a sunday afternoon cinema session you know so so klaus this is a question i like to ask everyone because you you talk to all these people from different walks of life you never know um when you were a kid what scared you well i think to be in the darkness you know to be in the dark in your room when you had big thunderstorms coming through you know i, I thought that was scary and spooky <laughs> Since we lived in this, this house in the middle of a beautiful, huge garden, which w- was uh, state property, you know, it, it was not that uh, I come from a working class family, you know, so this was part of the historical Herrenhäuser Garten here in Hanover. And so we were pr- pretty much on our own there. I grew up there until I was eight years old, I think, and then we moved to some other place. But like I said before, this place was, to me, so beautiful to grow up, you know, in, in the middle of nature and so much to discover and it, it was a beautiful time. Then when we moved to a different area in the city, it was probably, it was a much nicer apartment. And for my parents and me, I was the only child. 
to live in, you know, but where I, I grew up in the, the first eight years of my life, it was so different. It was more adventure. You mentioned those, <clears throat> uh, those parties you had with your friends earlier, Klaus. How early would you say that you discovered your own voice? Or was it your voice first or were you playing an instrument or anything like that? Like I said, my father played the mandolin and one Sunday afternoon, he gave me the guitar that belonged to his brother, which was in some place in the apartment. And when I hold it for the first time in my hand, my father showed me the first chords on the guitar and he was playing like being the lead guitarist in the band, you know, he yeah. played the melody on, on the mandolin and I just slamming the, some rhythm, you know, and he learned me the, he taught me the first chords on the guitar. And this is when I started uh, also to, to discover my voice and to sing when we had this kind of family gatherings around Christmas time, you know, so there was a song called Ave Maria. I just jumped up on, on, a, on a chair and this was my little stage and I, I sang to the family, you know, and there was some very positive feedback. So I knew early on, I knew I, I want to be a singer. I was not thinking about being a guitar player, but it was cool. At least you can play the guitar and, and sing along, you know, but my focus was on, on my voice early on because there was a reaction I got from the family, these family parties, you know. I had a very clean voice and getting a little older, when I met with the buddies with my first band, The Mushrooms, I worked hard on my voice to sound more rough, to give my voice more an edgy kind of sound, like Len McCartney singing Twist and Shout or something like that, you know. Outside of those parties that you just mentioned for your family, what what would you consider your first time on stage to be? Did it go off without any problems? <clears throat> it was when, when I joined the little band called The Mushrooms. They had some pretty cool guitars, some Fox amplifiers, you know. We had a chance to play at the weekend some little place. I think it belonged to the church nearby where like the kids came for the weekend to have a little party going on and we played there. I remember that we, like I said before, we had no car for the equipment. We, we had a little something to carry on our equipment and we had, we had to walk over there from the house we were rehearsing to this little church in the basement. And this was, I remember it was the first gig we played and we played many cover versions like Beatles, Stones, also, I think the guitar player, he was very good playing those early Shadows songs. You know this British band, The Shadows? Yeah, I've heard of Shadows. Yeah, and they, they were very popular at the time. This is like around the mid-60s. They were pretty popular. And so we had a section in our show where I picked up my guitar and became second guitar player, you know, because it was to present the, the Shadows material, which gave me a break from singing, which was pretty cool. I enjoyed very much to step aside from the front spot, being the lead singer in a band, you know, so I like this and just to play guitar, watch the crowd, you know, and uh, it, was, it was great. But this was just part of the show, but we played a lot of cover versions and uh, the band became quite popular around Hanover, all those little clubs yeah. uh, where we played over the weekend. This just was to figure out is this the right place to be, you know. <laughs> so the feedback we, we got was pretty good, you know. 
was inspiring. But a couple of years later, we split up, you know, and it was just when I met Rudolf Schenker, who just had started the Scorpions around the same time in the mid 60s. That's where we met and played the same kind of gigs in and out of Hanover. Klaus, I speak with a lot of actors and musicians. That's both two professions that could deal with stage fright. Have you ever, has that ever been an issue for you? And if it was, how did you get over it? Well, I think to this day, you always got butterflies in your stomach, you know, before you go on stage. I think that's quite a natural reaction of your body. But the, the moment you start the show, the moment you hear the music, you see the crowd, it's gone, you know. So I never really had a problem with that because I felt pretty much at home when I went walked out on stage for the show. It was always a very positive experience. But before, it can be brutal, you know. Before you go out, it can be sometimes really tough, you know. But I think that most of entertainers, musicians, uh, singers go through this kind of thing. It's just part of the, the game, you know, and uh, there's a lot of tension in the air, but it, it's all gone the minute you walk out on stage. Right, I think nerves are natural, and it, it kind of helps you prepare if you're a bit nervous. Yeah, it's a good thing in the end, mm. you know. Yeah, so Klaus, at what age or at what point did you realize that you could turn your interest in music into a career? When I was in my early 20s, I spent some time at the army, and when I came back, I met Rudolf again, who just was taking care of his little brother, Michael, Michael Schenker, and uh, he hooked me up with Michael, and I had, actually I had to go to their father to ask him that Michael can play lead guitar in a band together with me, and Rudolf arranged everything, so, so their father was like, okay, hands up, since I was a few years older than Michael, you know, it seemed like I came from the army. Uh, what can go wrong? You know, okay. <laughs> so let him go. And so we had a band called Copernicus, and we still played also like covers from Led Zeppelin or Remember the Taste, a band with their wonderful guitarist and singer Rory Gallagher. You know, so we played some stuff from them, and we rehearsed like next. Uh, to the room where the Scorpions uh, used to rehearse. So Rudolf, you could hear how his little brother was doing next door. And since the Scorpions had no singer at the time, it came the point where the lead guitarist in the Scorpions left the band. And so Rudolf asked his brother Michael to join the Scorpions. And since there was no singer, it would be a good idea if Klaus joins <laughs> us as well. You know? And this was the beginning, really of a long run that still goes on every other day. Yeah, it's it's crazy. And we have a laugh about it, you know. <laughs> it's like, hey, but that's life. And we were very lucky, you know, that we met at the late 60s where, where it was just about passion for the music and to be part of a, of a scene, you know, and to become a musician. Mm -hmm. And then when, when Michael and me joined the Scorpions, that was pretty much at the same time, the early 70s, when we started writing our own own songs. That was quite a challenge, but it came all very naturally and turned out that Michael was a super talented young guitar talent, you know, and also his compositions were really good, you know. And so it was a challenge, you know, to 
to form a band in those days and to stay together. When you think there was no management really, we had to do everything ourselves. We really had to be rock believers. <laughs> we really had to believe there is a, a way for us to go. Being a German band, singing in English, we always from the early days on, we didn't want to limit it ourselves by singing or trying to, to work with German lyrics. For us, the sound, the English uh, language in, in music was just perfect, you know. And even though our English was not very good at the time, you know, but the desire to sing in English was huge and turned out in the end of the day, it was a ticket for a world career. Right. Now, would you say in those early years in Germany, was it rare for German bands to even attempt to sing in English in those days? Yeah, I mean, all the bands, like when we're just we're talking about the 60s, all those bands uh, played cover versions of their heroes, of their favorite artists, you know, and uh, it was like Led Zeppelin, The Who, you know, all those bands, The Stones, The Beatles. This English language was so much connected with this music we thought was so mega cool, and we laughed so much. You know, there was no other way than to sing in English, you know, and uh, even we, we were not very good at speaking the language, uh, but no problem. Even if it sounded phonetically like what we wanted to say, we, we went for it, you know. There were very few artists who started writing German lyrics. Basically, it was one artist who became very big in Germany because he started in the early 70s writing German lyrics, but still staying on the cool side. He became very popular, Udo Lindenberg, and mm. he is an artist, uh, he's to this day, he's out there playing stadiums and pretty cool. But he, he was like, he was the only one who did it. And later on, and like, like now, I think most of the German artists, they sing in German. So it's a whole different world now, so different from what it was back in the 60s, you know. It was a cultural revolution, you know, all those bands from America. The Beatles were inspired by Elvis and Little Richard, you know. The Stones were Chuck Berry, Muddy Waters, all those great artists. And then this wave came over Germany, you know, in the in the late, or no, in the, in the early 60s, like 63, 64, the Beatles played at the Star Club in Hamburg. And we were like, so to speak, the next generation who picked up the guitars and were so so very much inspired by most of those British artists that played here in Germany. So Klaus, in 72, you guys had that split. So how did you eventually get back together? We played together for quite a while with Scorpions. We recorded our first album with the Scorpions, Lonesome Crow, but after that, uh, we had a tour in Germany with the British band UFO and they lost their guitar player because of customs, passport reasons, you know, and they hired Michael right away. So he played with us being the opening band and then he played with the main act with UFO. And he was like, it was so cool. And they realized how good this German kid was and hired him right away. So that's how we lost our first brilliant guitar player. <laughs> And then we started all over again with Uli John Roth. Michael actually had recommended Uli. Uli who also became one of those guitar legends. Got lucky again. You know? 
<laughs> yeah. So we were very lucky and we went into the studio around 73, 74 for Flight of the Rainbow, which was the second album. And uh, it was a whole new band together with Uli Francis and the drummers changed, you know, almost every other month. <laughs> <laughs> we were in trouble. So this Scorpions formation became really strong when we met with our longtime producer Dieter Dirks in '75, we recorded uh, we recorded uh, in trance. Yeah, Virgin Killer, Taken by Force, and we had an offer to play in Japan around '77, '78. That's when Uli John Roth decided to leave because he wanted to do his own project and play his very Jimi Hendrix-inspired kind of music. And so Rudolf and me became the main songwriters in the band. And with Matthias Jobs joining us in 78, 79, we became very strong, powerful band, you know, that spoke musically with, with one, just one voice, you know, together. Before it was Uli writing his songs and Rudolf and me wrote our uh, stuff, you know, and in the, in the end we had to split up. In the end, it, it was a good thing because with Matthias and the band, we became more more of a unit. We became very strong. And after Japan, it was America was calling. And uh, we had a chance to go to New York to be signed with one of the best management companies in the world at the time, Liver Krebs. And then 79, we played for the very first time in the United States. A dream come true. So, Klaus, if you had to pinpoint a moment early on in your career where you think to yourself, holy shit, we've made it. Where's that moment? There were different moments. I mean, maybe the first one was in 75 when we played the famous Marquee Club in London. Maybe the second was when we played in Tokyo in, in 78. I mean, for a German band to, to play in Japan in those days, nobody ever did that before, you know. It, it was culture shock, you know, and it was such a <laughs> wonderful moment. And then to come to America when we played at the big festival in Cleveland, Ohio, that was also like a, a magic moment. So they were always going to the next level. And maybe the next one was in 84 when we headlined Madison Square Garden. There was only one way it was <laughs> up. <laughs> so there were different moments uh, where you, but there was never uh, really a moment where you thought now we made it you know maybe when we played the garden in new york that was maybe some magic moment where we thought okay now we're on top of the world what comes next but i forgot to say that we played the us festival in 82 83 in california in front of 250,000 crazy u.s fans and co-headlining with van halen that was a magic moment as well. I think that was the moment that made the Scorpions big in the United States. You mentioned uh, culture shock with the Japan uh, shows. How was that first U.S. tour for you guys? Do you remember that being a culture shock? Yeah, totally. I mean, we, we were really lucky that after the first show we did in Cleveland, that we were part of a tour all over the States. We were the opening act. Special guest was ACDC. And the headliner was Ted Nugent. And Jeez. so that package was amazing. And I mean, those crazy Germans, us, <laughs> we played like crazy every night. We had to to be in this competition, you know, which was like 
it was different, a lot different from just playing in Germany or in Europe. But all of a sudden in America, it was like now we're playing Formula One. We're not in some race car competition. This is Formula One. And we learned a lot from America, you know, being the band, being entertainers, you know, talking to the audience between songs and really giving every night so much energy and getting so much back from the U.S. fans. I mean, the American fans and also the radio stations, the rock stations in, in the United States, they welcomed us with open arms, you know, and it was so much fun, even though we still couldn't speak the language properly, <laughs> you know, so much fun to be on any radio station in the U.S. And they gave us a lot of support. And at the same time, we wrote some killer songs that made it big in the United States, like No One Like You, or around 84, it was uh, Love It First Thing, Rocky Like a Hurricane, you know, so there were, there were certain moments. So it was so inspiring to see the United States for the first time through the tour bus window, you know, mm. spent all those nights on the road, driving thousands of miles, all over the United States and playing killer shows every night and to really to grow together and be inspired and come home with so many ideas and so many new songs that we recorded then while back in Germany together with our producer Dieter Dirks and then out on the road again. Uh, I mean, we just closed the studio door and we had to go someplace on the other side of the planet, you know, so... <laughs> It was like those days were crazy and amazing, but there was really rock and roll. And it was what, what, what every band like in the early 70s or late 70s, this was like 79 going into the 80s, were dreaming of, you know, there was really like the big rock and roll dream come true and it right. was up to you if you fuck it up or <laughs> if you if you stay alive if you even with all those parties going on if you can't deliver the goods even after 100 shows you know that's pretty cool so speaking of that klaus uh correct me if i'm wrong but the recording of the blackout album did you uh, did you lost your voice for that recording did you not yeah yeah that was like life seemed to be too good to be true you know and then tragedy hit me like with a big hammer on the head and I lost my voice during those recording sessions and uh, for blackout and we had to stop I mean the band kept going in in the studio but I I had to go from one doctor to the to another to check my vocal cords and all they had to say most of them was what you do for a living and I said I'm a rock singer oh geez you should look for a new job, you know. Oh, no. It was a big shock, you know. So, but I found a very good doctor after I had surgery twice on my vocal cords. I found a very good doctor in Vienna, in Austria, who was taking care of all the opera singers. He gave me a very good treatment to build up my voice again and after surgery and also to give me mentally, you gave me the strength to believe in myself and along the way I lost it and I said to Rudolf guys I don't want you to wait any longer for your lead singer you should look for an, a new guy this is it for me and Rudolf being the guy that he is you know he said no way you know we wait for you you do whatever you have to do 
he would kick my butt, you know. <laughs> this is no, there's no easy way out now for you. You have to work twice as hard, do what you have to do. Yes, we'll be back and we wait. We wait as long as it takes. And that was a very strong moment of friendship, you know, in all this, what was tragedy for me was a very powerful moment of friendship uh, that glued the band even more together than before, you know, and uh, I worked very hard and I came back and I survived the recording sessions for Blackout and I even survived the tour after that and uh, where we went all over the world and Blackout was a mega success. It was huge, you know, and uh, and I was the most luckiest guy on earth. Did you ever get any reason as to why it happened? Was it just wear and tear from all the shows you were doing? I was just not really being too sensitive about my, my voice. You know, I, I, I just been was singing every show like it was the last one. And I just paid the price for it, pushing so hard and also working in the studio so hard. I did always pretty much up to this day all the backing vocals you know all those high high vocals on top of the lead vocal there was no singer in the, no second singer in the band so i had to do them all myself you know and there was sometimes there was was a tough challenge you know and but especially the the live shows and we played six seven shows or more in in a row you know not giving your voice a rest and too many things that went wrong and that I, I had to pay the price, you know, and I learned a lot in those days around 82 and I learned about how to treat my my instrument a little more sensitive and to stay on top of things, you know. So it's in a way up till now, I'm on the longest encore in my life, you know, because <laughs> my career was over. Right, <laughs> I was right. done. But then it really started after that, that the band became really big. So, Klaus, is it true that during that session, did Don Dockin fill in for you until you recovered? Yes. Don was a friend of Dieter Dirks, I think, at the time. And Don had a very nice voice. And he recorded a lot of the back of the, the, the lead vocals when I was in the hospital and when I was not ready to sing. So the, the band wanted to move on. They wanted to work the, the songs. And they, they needed someone to put some vocals on there and that was done and he did a great job you know yeah we were all very thankful and happy that he he did a great job on that you know but of course when i was back and a lot of people still asking the question how much is left of the, of don Dawkins voice on blackout it's not you know <laughs> <laughs> i did it all myself and i'm so happy i i, I did at the time, Don was a great help, and he's a great guy. Whenever we play California, mostly he shows up. Yeah, you know, if Rudolf would have said to me, come on, Klaus, we wait for you, it would have been easy maybe to hire Don Dockin for the band and to have an American lead singer when you think about it. But, I mean, Don had a great career without the Scorpions, I think. <laughs> After Blackout, I mean, the career of the Scorpions were like, zoom, you know. And it's a great album to this day, and we still have many songs in the set list when we play uh, live. Right now, we hope we come back to the United States next next year, and let's see, but I can't give away too much right now. It's not over yet. So, uh, Klaus, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but Scorpions were one of the first bands to play in the USSR in 89. 
So uh, what was that experience like? What do you remember from that? Yeah, this has a very special place in our hearts because we're Germans, because of history, because the generation of our parents went to war with the whole world, but also especially with Russia, for us to play there. Also because we never were allowed to play east of the Berlin Wall. We never had a chance to go there and, and play shows in East Germany. You know, so through a Hungarian promoter, we had very good connections to Moscow. And we had the offer to play five shows in Moscow and five in Leningrad in, in 88. We were not the first band. The, the first band was British band Uraria Heap, who played a few shows in Russia, I think. But before we left for Moscow, they cancelled our Moscow shows, you know, and they offered us uh, instead five shows in Moscow. You guys go and play ten shows in Leningrad. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> of course, we were disappointed because we wanted also play in Moscow, but time was not right. And we agreed to go to Leningrad, today is St. Petersburg, and we played 10 shows there. And we told the, the media, uh, there were hundreds of press people, like before the first concert, a big press conference. We said, our parents came with tanks, we come with guitars, you know, and we bring love and peace. And it was an amazing experience. And with all the success, we enjoyed in the free world up to then. This was like a whole new territory. It was like behind the Iron Curtain. It was to go to a place where rock music was not allowed, where young kids get busted, you know, because they listen to some Western music, you know. It was a brave thing. It was a huge operation to play those shows. But the great thing was that the Russian audience, they loved our music. They knew our music because they have heard our songs before. They were changing, exchanging uh, tapes, cassettes for the cassette players, you know. So they knew our music. And those 10 shows were completely sold out with 15, 16,000 people every night. And it was the biggest sports arena in Leningrad at the time. It was just an amazing experience. And when one year later, the Moscow Music Peace Festival happened in Moscow, it was because in the Kremlin was a new guy, Mikhail Gorbachev. He made it happen. And also, I think the fact that we have played 10 shows in Leningrad in 88 was a door opener for everybody to follow and to play in Moscow. Whether it's Motley Crue, Bon Jovi or Ozzy Osbourne, they all were part of the Moscow Music Peace Festival and Doc McGee put it all together. He didn't forget the Scorps who played there first and made it happen. And it was an amazing moment to play in Leland Stadium for two nights in front of over 200,000 people. And uh, they came from Siberia, from everywhere, from all over the East Bloc countries, also from our neighbors in the, from the DDR, East Germans came to Moscow to, to see us for the very first time. A historical moment it was like looking back something like a Russian Woodstock unbelievable I mean they lit the Olympic fire you know for rock and roll you know and it was like I can't believe this is real and to see the Russian soldiers when we start stage with blackout see the Russian soldiers turning around they were like security 
uh, in the, in the stadium, and there were lots and lots and lots of them. But they became fans. They threw their caps in the air, take their jackets out, you know, and they became one with the fans. Western culture, you know, it was quite a very very special and exciting moment, and it was very inspiring. When I came home, I wrote "Wind of Change," which was probably an unexpected song because it was so very much connected with what we experienced in the Soviet Union. And we saw like time of the Cold War would be over soon. This was when we came home, there was this was a feeling. We, we saw a whole new generation and those Russian kids said the Cold War is over, you know. I was filled with hope coming together, getting the past, you know, where it was the West is a good guy, the East is a bad guy. No, we all joined together. Uh, and music was the language who made it happen. You know, rock and roll, rock music had the power to bring all those people together. So it was a very positive outlook into the future that the next generations to come will live in a world together, you know, to make it better. Now we know it didn't work out that way. Uh, which is a sad, sad story. And but, since the invasion of Russia in the Ukraine in February last year, you see that you can take freedom for granted, important for, for all of us, for our life and for generations to come. Of course, we hope there will be peace again and this terrible and senseless war will be over soon kind of just answered my next question klaus uh because you've composed your fair share of songs so i was going to ask you about the earliest inspiration for winds of change and it was that those shows in uh russia yeah it was definitely i mean one day it was organized we jumped on a boat on the moskwa on the river the moskwa and the destination was gorky park and it was all the musicians all the media people from all over the world and Russian soldiers, Russian bands, British bands, US bands, German bands, all together speaking one language, music. And it was such a, like a vision. We're all together here in Moscow and seems that music is so powerful, you know, such a powerful language and that it, it might change the world, you know, and, and it was a very touchy moment. And the reason we came up with a song like Wind of Change is because we grew up after World War II in a divided Germany, in a divided city of Berlin with the Berlin Wall. For us, the meaning to play behind the Iron Curtain it was so much stronger, so emotional for, I guess, for Bon Jovi, Ozzy, Motley, for them, it was, let's, hey, hey, dudes, let's rock the Iron Curtain, you know, and let's rock the Soviet Union. Yeah, it was cool. But for us, it was much, much more, you know, that had a much deeper, stronger meaning. And that's why I guess I, I wrote that song, because it came straight off out of my system, mm. out of my soul. I just wanted to write down the whole experience, what we saw and what we were part of, you know, we were part of it. Yeah. One of the reasons I wrote the song before the Berlin Wall came down, but it was all up in the air. You could feel it in Moscow that things are about to change. You know, this change will come. That's what I tried to say. 
this was for so many people in East and West, even after so many years, this song has a special place for a lot of people and it's so much connected with the end of the Cold War, the coming down of the Berlin Wall. It's, uh, you wouldn't think when you write a song, a song can be in that place for decades and for a long time to come probably, you know, because we all want peace. We all want to live in a peaceful world, want to have freedom, you know, and that will never change, you know. And therefore, this song is still very relevant these days, especially these days. I changed the lyrics because when we played Las Vegas last year, I changed the lyrics because I thought it's not the time to romanticize Russia with lines like, I follow the Moskva to Rocky Park, let your balalaika sing, you know. So I changed a few lines to make clear that we support the Ukraine. Now the song, and this is, I sang it for the first time when the tour started last year in Vegas. Uh, now listen to my heart, it says Ukraine waiting for the winter change. It's on this tour and we played last year and this year last year in the US and this year in Latin America and Europe. So they all understand the message. And so that's why I said after all these years, you wouldn't think the song is still so so relevant and popular, you know, but for people, even after all these years, it means a lot. So Klaus, out of all the songs that you've composed or all the, all the live shows that you've done, what would you say is the most challenging song to perform? The most challenging song to perform, it's between Still Loving You and No One Like You. Mm, is that just the vocal range of it? Yeah, the vocal range of it. I, I would say on top of the list would be No One Like You. <laughs> <laughs> because it, it's a tough one, you know. The chorus doesn't give you a break to take a breather, you know. It's all the time up there. It's a tough one to perform, you know. But at the same time, it's one of our biggest hits in the United States, and it's great to see that our fans still like it so much whenever we we play in the U.S., you know. This is one of the big ones. In America, while Still Loving You is much more popular, being such a strong ballad uh, here in Europe, especially. But it's also, for a singer, a tough one to perform. What would 75-year-old Klaus say to... 19 year old class <laughs> i would say keep going keep going man <laughs> this is something i like to ask everyone too uh have you ever had an experience that you would consider supernatural or paranormal not something that comes to my mind right away you know maybe i had supernatural supernatural kind of experience that's what you're saying yeah or spiritual spiritual yeah, yeah. i mean i feel my heart i feel i'm close to god you know i believe in god well, yes, there might be spiritual moments along the way, you know, of course, there, there probably there are, you know, I, I always can feel it when we're some places on the road and I might see a little beautiful church along the way and I go there and the whole vibe and atmosphere, this is where I feel very much connected, you know, but with or without a church, I, I feel connected with God anyway. Klaus, just to put a bow on everything here, just tell folks what's on the horizon for you. What can we expect coming up? Well, we're still out there with the Rock Believer Tour. takes us around the world. And there, even though we have a little break right now, uh, we keep going next year. We pick it up. 
And like I said, we might come back to the United States. There are a lot of other places we haven't been on this tour so far. And we keep going. And who knows if we go back to the studio at some point again. We never really talk about it. Right now, we're still doing Rock Believer tour and we enjoy it a lot, you know. There's so many Rock Believers out there. When you think so many people in all those years said rock is dead because of grunge, because of hip hop, because of rap, whatever it is, you know, but no, it's not that at all. You know, there's so many, there are millions of rock believers out there. We can't wait to see them in 2024 and in 25, because it will mark the 60th anniversary of the Scorpions. Wow. That is something quite special. So right now, 24, 25, next year we're on the road and we put it all together right now. Can't wait to see the Rock Believers out there again. The new album is still a new album, Rock Believer, you know, and we can't wait to go out there and maybe we change a couple of songs in the show. Uh, we'll, see, we'll see, you know. It's too early to say, but we can't wait to, to be out there next year and uh, for 25 yeah it's 60 years hard to believe yeah i can't even <laughs> believe that that's crazy yeah you know there are guys the next generation ahead of us like the rolling stones you know it's amazing to see what they're doing just heard a couple of days ago the their new songs and man they're rocking hard you know that's pretty cool it's been a pleasure talking to you i'm gonna let you get out of here and you have a great rest of your day justin keep going what you're doing and best of luck Hope to see you out there when we might play in South Carolina again. All right, folks. I hope you enjoyed that chat with Klaus. As always, thanks for listening, and we'll see you back next time. Monsters, madness, and magic. <laughs> Welcome to the night. You think you know Night Demon? Then the Night Demon Heavy Metal Podcast is for you. Step into the darkness as we peel back the curtain to give you an unprecedented, all-access look into the mind and the heart of the demon. We're talking band history, song analysis, studio anecdotes, stories from the road. It's everything a diehard Night Demon fan could want and more. This is the only place to learn the inside scoop the deep dive trivia, the untold tales from the band members themselves and those closest to the Night Demon story. Need more? The sacred Night Demon crypt will be pried open to reveal demo recordings that have never before seen the light of day. All with in-depth commentary by the band and the people who were there for the writing and recording process. This is a gold mine, a treasure trove of all things Night Demon. Head over to nightdemon.net or wherever you listen to podcasts.